It's been almost 100 years now since an Oxford uh, cultural anthropologist by the name of J.D. Unwin published uh, a huge 600-page report called Sex and Culture. And in it, what he had done was he was measuring the effect that publicly agreed upon uh, sexual mores had upon the flourishing of that society. And he goes through some 86 different civilizations and societies to see if there's a relationship between a culture that pursues sexual freedom and one where culture flourishes. Well, his results were really amazing because he found that there was an absolute correlation between a society that holds premarital chastity and postmarital monogamy as treasured values and the flourishing of that society in all kinds of areas. Uh, and he even made a bolder claim that if some culture would embrace those values for at least three generations, they would see enhancements in almost every cultural area, like literature and art and engineering and craftsmanship and architecture and everything. What's even more than that is, of the, of the 86 different societies that he looked at, only three had ever attained to that particular level. So that the freer that a society became when it came to sexuality, the more rationality itself was challenged, the more marital fidelity fell on hard times, and the more that religious life itself waned, leading a lot of cultural anthropologists to study this curious link between the two. Now, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> you're thinking, okay, Les, well... I'm sure that people 100 years ago thought lots of weird things. <laughs> uh, what does that have to do with our enlightened selves? Uh, others of you are taking a more academic approach, and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa there, preacher boy. Um, correlation does not necessarily mean causation. In other words, just because there's a decline in public life and sexual morals doesn't mean that one caused the other. Uh, but, but regardless, I do think there's reasons in our own day to sort of look at Unwin's premise with some merit, especially when you consider after the sort of um, um, hypersexual increase that we've had in the last 50 to 60 years, we find ourselves at a place where what? Truth is a very questioned concept. Marital fidelity is, has declined drastically. And religious life is on a, a decline like it's never been in our nation's history. Now look, I realize that all of that may be more or less interesting to you as we do a study on the Sermon on the Mount, but I do think it's worth us exploring because of how often, I think, when we have visions in our minds of the good life, isn't it interesting how often those ideas are sexualized? In other words, if you're a man, my guess is if you found yourself fantasizing about a better life, there's a hyper-sexualized woman present in there who can really meet your needs in the way in which your spouse does not. Or if you're a woman, my guess is you've got a very highly idealized boyfriend and vulnerable girlfriend of Hallmark movie fame that represents the best of your fantasies. But either way, my best life is often sexualized. Well, why is that? Well, I want to try to answer that question this morning by looking at how Jesus unpacks our lust. And it's not an exhaustive treatment in any way, but I think that when you add together what Jesus says with the rest of the Bible's teaching about sexuality, you find a very powerful antidote to a sex-obsessed culture. And if what people like J.D. Unwin are saying are right, then it may actually provide some fabric to our very cohesion as a society. So what's the big deal with our lust? Why are our fantasies so alluring? 
And is, Jesus, is what Jesus describing anywhere near possible for us today? Well, to unpack those, I want to look at three things. First of all, I want to consider the tyranny of lust. I want to consider the anatomy of lust. And then finally, the healing of lust. Let's look at that first one, the tyranny of lust. Look at verse 28. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, Jesus says, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now look, like we saw last week, what Jesus is doing is, is he's trying to keep you from externalizing the law. No, if you're going to be my follower, obedience has got to begin at the very core centers of your humanity. But if you look at it, that's a pretty intense statement. Because what Jesus is saying is, for you to entertain an imaginative mental fantasy about having a sexual encounter with someone that you are not married to, that act should be judged in the same category as marital infidelity itself, or even rape for that matter. But you got to let that sink in for a second, because regardless of your opinion of the Bible's view of human sexuality, you got to admit that once it starts to talk about it, it's not really playing around. I thought of a couple of examples. Proverbs 5, 8, keep your way far from the forbidden woman and do not go near the door of her house. Later on in Proverbs 6, 27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. You hear the intensity? And then, of course, 1 Corinthians 6.18, you've got Paul saying, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. But look, honestly, all of those passages, they kind of pale in comparison to what Jesus says when all of a sudden he starts to talk about cutting things off. <laughs> Jesus is saying to us, it would be better for you to amputate any influence in your life that might contribute to your lusting than to risk the damage to your soul and to others that you would engage in with it. By the way, small little side note asterisk down at the bottom of the page here. The Christian church, almost from the very beginning, uh, outlawed and discouraged any sort of self-mutilation, taking Jesus' word in a literal sense. That's not what he means. He means that we are to rid ourselves of any opportunities to hurt people in this way. In other words, he's saying there's almost nothing that can be deemed too drastic for you to do when it's done in the name of removing these impediments to sexual purity. There's so much writing on this, Jesus thinks. Which I think would be worth us asking in a small way, are there places where I have purposely self-handicapped so that I can avoid the destructive nature of lust. Now look, it's okay this morning if you're thinking to yourself, well, great. So glad we decided to come to church on this particular morning. All I needed was a guilt trip after the week that I've had. But that's actually not what I'm thinking at all, because I simply want us to notice that Jesus is as intense as he is about lust, not because he hates sex and wants to end our enjoyment. Actually, I would argue quite the opposite. Because God knows that by nature, lust is something that is destructive to human flourishing. Why? Because in the end, it dehumanizes people. And we're going to get to how in just a second. But at the beginning of the outset, please understand that you must distinguish between lust on the one hand and biblical sex on the other. Because in the Bible's view, those are not subcategories of the same thing. They are entirely different things. What happens when we lust after someone is diametrically against God's design for sex. 
and therefore it's hurtful for people. It's a great book by Jay Stringer called Unwanted Sexual Behavior where he says this. He says, the irony of sinful sexual behavior is that it is actually against sex. It's not so much that we want too much sex. It's that we want too much anti-sexual behavior. We know the beauty and power of sex, but we also know when we are pursuing a deviant imitation of a beautiful erotic life. It is not possible, listen to this, it is not possible to become too sexual for God. It is possible, however, to grow increasingly trapped in anti-sexual behavior. That's exactly the way it should be put, I think. Now look, there's a part of me at this point who kind of wants you to be a little bit confused um, about why it is that Jesus is so cooked up about it. What is it about our lust that makes it as bad as Jesus says that it is? Why was it given those kinds of prohibitions? Well, that brings me to the second point, and that is the anatomy of our lust. How do we unpack this? Because I got a strong suspicion that what I just said was not really a surprise to most of you. I mean, after so many years as a Christian and even as a pastor, I've talked to people for whom few struggles really quite match the one the ones that we feel when we're wrestling with sexual issues and unwanted sexual behavior. You can easily get to the point where you feel like it's just kind of inevitable. Uh, it, it's an unavoidable problem and so pervasive. Why do I even fight it? But if you'll grant for a moment the possibility that Jesus is not you know, mindlessly hoisting something on us that's too great for us to bear, but rather that he's instructing with us with something that is in accordance with our design, then maybe we can hear his warnings with new ears. Let me just state it differently this way. What is up with my lust? Like literally what is going on in that activity? And in order to unpack it, I want to, I want to deal with two things. On the one hand, I want to talk about how the Bible talks about us, the way we are made as creatures. And then we'll be ready to talk about what the Bible says sex is. Okay, let's start with that first one. How are we made? Well, at this point, you should roll your eyes when you hear me say again, because I'm going to keep saying it. That the Bible describes you fundamentally as a desiring creature. The Christian view of human design is that there is within you a motivational center that the Bible calls the heart. You've heard me describe that heart as very much like an intravenous needle that you get when you go into a hospital and can't feed yourself. What you do is you hook that IV up to something from which you draw life. That is the function of your heart. It makes you feel alive. Our desires, therefore, come out of us from our hearts. They're the ones that sort of embody and bring forth the wishes and allegiances of my heart. But you know what we don't talk about very often is the role of the imagination. And, this is, and I think that's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 5. Seriously, have you ever spent some time thinking about how amazing your imagination is? You have the ability in your mind to fashion visions of things that don't exist. You have this ability to, to create mental pictures uh, and, and entertain possibilities. Uh, you can mull over, over potentialities with, with other jobs, other spouses, other bank accounts. But the point is, the imagination works around the ideas of the heart and enlivens them, which in turn then become desires. Now, did you see my progression that I formed there? Whatever comes out of your life begins in the allegiances of the heart 
It's animated and nurtured in our imaginations, but then comes out of us in full flower as a desire. That makes sense? Now, why am I going into all this? Well, because if you don't have an idea of how you function as a human being, you're going to be real confused about sexual desires, especially in our day. Because in our day, we've grown accustomed to talking about sexuality in terms of our orientation. We say that someone has a heterosexual orientation or someone has a homosexual orientation. Now, what you may not know that that's actually a term that was quite new to uh, modern psychology. Sigmund Freud was the first one to suggest that sexuality in general is far more a noun than it is a verb. It's not something that you do, it's something that you are. Sex is not just an action, it's an identity. And so I wonder how surprising it is for you to hear that the Bible does not talk about orientation at all. The Bible knows nothing of sexual orientation about whether someone is hetero or homosexual. It's simply saying your humanity is defined by a heart nurtured in imagination and motivated by desires. And I realize this is going to take some getting used to when you realize that the Bible does not define our desires, but rightness or wrongness therein, by first of all their intensity. You don't understand, this is just the way I feel, I can't help myself. Or by how long they've been present in your life. Les, I'm just convinced that I was born this way. The Bible is not even concerned with that conversation because it simply says that there are certain things that we can discern about the sinfulness of an action or a desire that are only pictured for it by its object. In other words, if the, if the desire itself, what it's aiming at, is approved in God's design, then the desire can said to be, to be holy. But if it's not, then the desire is said to be sinfulness, regardless of how intense it feels or how natural it might feel. You are a desiring creature. Okay, that, that, that's how we are made. Go to the second point now about what it means for how sex is made. Because now we're ready to understand this. And let's return to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. When you get there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, is a situation where Adam and Eve are both naked and there's no shame in it. Now, why was there no shame in it? Well, I think I can answer that quickly by saying because they realized that their gender as male and female existed as a form of self-giving. Even the sex act itself, the man gives himself to the woman. And the woman, on the other hand, by freely opening herself up, gives herself to the man. So when a Christian talks about sex, it doesn't come purely in the terms of, of thinking about this inner compulsion or desire. Rather, what she thinks about is this opportunity to do mutual self-giving. And I would also argue that that mutual self-giving lives in the midst of our diversity. God wants his people to wonder at the self-giving of our sexuality, which is why it is always only appropriate for it to be given to the opposite sex. Homosexual desires and sexual unions cannot reflect the diversity that God wants our self-giving to have. Rather, it should always be an expression of me giving. This is what 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. God gives himself to man in the person of Jesus. Jesus gives his body for his people. 
So there's a sense in which sex is almost like a, um, it's like a little s sacrament. It's a sign and a seal of that reality of self-giving. Okay, can now you understand why Jesus is so angry about our lust? Because lust is always the opposite of self-giving. Essentially, it's an other-taking. Because we're saying, I want you on my terms. I want you in my timing. And I want you in the vision of my imagination. And that is selfishness. Oh, and by the way, it leads to some really bad sex in the process. A Christian is not supposed to be motivated by, by, by the hopes and the longing for greater and greater sexual ecstasy. Rather, there's a constancy of self-giving love that's intended to unite the other person, even in the midst of our radical diversity, male and female. So lust is just this reversal of this idea, and therefore you find and realize that lust is always making promises. Excuse me, sex is always making promises. And, and what's funny is, is whenever we engage in it, sex actually makes those promises whether we intend to or not. But when we're not married to the person that we're having sex with, and if what Jesus is saying is right, whether that's started in the allegiance of the heart or been sort of mulled over in our imagination or has found its full expression in our desire, when we engage in it that way, we're lying. It's a lie to engage in such. Sex outside of marriage is a lie because it says something that's not true. That I'm united to you in a powerful way when I'm actually not with my covenants. Selfish marital sex is a lie. That's why it's destructive. Homosexual sex acts are a lie because it can't picture that. Sexlessness in a biblical marriage is a lie because at each time it's not coming and giving the full truth about what sex is meant to represent. And that is the self-giving God. And here's the deal, and we've got to remind ourselves of this because the Sermon on the Mount's all about it. Lies hurt people. Do they not? Lies are destructive. They hurt. And I wish I had a better example of how betrayal hurts us, but that's the first thing that popped in my head when I was working through this. Do you remember the old uh, 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 classic with Robin Williams and Sally Fields, Mrs. Doubtfire? And there's a scene towards the very end where all of a sudden Sally Fields' character discovers that this dear, kindly, elderly lady who's been serving her home and she's been confiding in suddenly realizes that it's actually her estranged husband the whole time. And you watch Sally Field, and she's a master at this, start flipping through the faces of betrayal. You know, at first time she's like, the whole time, the whole time. She suddenly goes from, from, from heartbreak to anger to shock until finally, what does she say at the very end? She's like, I have to go. We have to go. She does a masterful job at what it does to us. Whenever we sense betrayal, we want to get away. We want to crawl into a hole to disengage. And so Jesus says, that's the antithesis of what my kingdom's coming to bring. And so therefore, Christians are those people that, that keep their sex within heterosexual same, uh, marriages, heterosexual marriages between a man and a woman. So we flee from those things. So the tyranny of lust, the anatomy of lust, where does that lead us in the healing of lust? Well, I think at a pretty good spot if you think about it. Because if you're able to understand how our desires work, then you can start to deal with the inevitable result of even talking about sex in a place like this, which is a lot of shame and fear that washes over all of us. But the Bible gives, I think, good advice because it knows how we work. Remember, 
actions, all of my actions begin in the allegiance of the heart. They are nurtured in my imagination and then they are directed by my desires. And for that reason, Jay Stringer in that book I mentioned before says that in order to start dealing with unwanted sexual behavior, we've got to start going deep. And as shameful as a process is, he says we have to begin to ask about what we have been after in our fantasies. Why am I excited by the things that I am excited? Why does my mind entertain these things? And superficial answers won't do. The answer to that question cannot be, well, because that man is 10 times the man my husband is. That's why. No, 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 no. That's not the, that's not the answer. Remember, the heart pledges allegiance to what it thinks will give it life. So what vision of life have I sold my soul to? What do I think the good life is out there? What fantasies have I nurtured in my imagination? Where does my mind drift when it needs comfort? Comfort from, from embarrassment or pain or boredom or worse, betrayal? Why is it that I find myself lured in by the illicit, by the dangerous, or dare I say the violent? I mean, it's kind of a scary illustration, but you realize that researchers are noticing that so much of internet pornography is loaded, like crazy percentages in the 90s, of degrading violence almost exclusively towards women. Is it possible that at the root of my own sexual dysfunction that I continually stress over and confess, uh, try to confess, is that there is a powerful, unresolved, or unattended to anger? Hey, maybe that's why Jesus started thinking about our lust right after he started talking about our anger, like we talked about last week. Look, here's the point. <laughs> that journey into those fantasies, you're probably not going to make that journey alone. This is part of the nature of all this. Sexual dysfunction is of a sort that it takes helping, getting some help from someone else to get outside of my imagination. And finding safe people to help walk through that is not an easy task. But that's the challenge. A number of years ago, and I've used this illustration before, but there was a young man in my office a number of years ago um, who was confronting his own sexual addictions because long before there were apps, hookup apps, whatever it is this week, Tinder, Grindr, whatever, there were places on campus where people knew and found out that young men could have anonymous hookups with other young men. And this young man had been engaging in that uh, excessively. And so by the time he had unfloated some of these behaviors, he was so washed out in shame and in fear that he would literally ball up in the corner of my office, almost catatonic. But on one occasion, he told me with tears in his eyes, he says, Les, you have no idea what it's like to wake up every single morning and have the first word that pops into your mind, the word pervert. You see, it wasn't just these homosexual hookups that were igniting his imagination. His imagination was equally fired by the conviction that he was filthy because of it. And, that, and because he was filthy, he was untouchable. He was unlovable. And what I began to realize was, that's where we've got to start to deal with the problem. Rather than some externalizing obedience out here, we've got to get to one's heart. Because I, saw, I told him at one point, I said, look, brother, until you begin to see Jesus as being your perversion for you, we're not going to be able to get through this. And he looked at me and he goes, that sounds blasphemous. And I said, yeah, it did to his first followers as well. 
But like Luther would say is, we end up coming to Christ for healing when we so clothe him in our sins that when we hear the Father judging him for his sin, he's judging my perversion in him. And then all of a sudden we find out that he rose again a few days later so that I can now all equally be in him as I am raised again of newness of life. Here's what I'm saying. It's possible that something that miraculous might invade your imagination and hold your, your imagination captive for a little bit longer. Psalm 27 verse 4 would say, All I long for in life is to be in the house of the Lord and to gaze on his beauty. That's what we're going for. And it's okay to admit to yourself, I, I, I can't imagine thinking of God as something that could be so glorious and imaginative that it could displace these other things that have held out to me as shiny objects. Hey, but that's a challenge, isn't it? Why don't you ask him for that? Lord, would you provide for me something that might be alluring? Would you show yourself to be the great lover of my soul so that in coming to you, I might find some relief? And so, many, so much of our visions of the good life are sexualized. But what we need is a new sexual revolution. And as it turns out, it might actually help us repair the culture around us as we do. And wouldn't that be great? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, you have to guide us into this because myself included, we are haunted by the images of our sexual failure. And there is so much shame and embarrassment. Father, so many things that worry us. But we pray that you would bring us into safe people people who love us and care for us, that perhaps we can ask for some help to begin to verbalize things that embarrass us and maybe suddenly find that deep down we were longing for something that is nowhere near as good as you. And so we pray that you administer us in this hour as we stand together and sing in Jesus' name. Amen.